would, turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 27 to 36 this morning, but want to start reading back in uh, verse 20, just so we get the context a little bit. So, John 12, verse 20, hear the word of the Lord. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these Greeks came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. When we cover verses 27 and 36 in a minute, it, it, it will be an explanation of that sentence right there. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death He was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this word and thank you for the testimony that you have borne concerning your son. I pray that you would exalt him now through the preaching of the word as he was exalted earlier in the songs that we were singing I pray that you would receive all glory from the words I communicate and from the hearts that receive this word with humility and joy and thanksgiving and conviction. I pray that you would do a great work in all of us this morning as we go through your word together. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have a remarkable passage before us this morning, and it's remarkable for a number of reasons. 
for starters, it's, it's also part of chapter 12. That's pretty obvious. And I, but I said last time that chapter 12 is a hinge chapter. The entire Gospel of John hinges on chapter 12. A lot of uh, the loose ends in chapters 1 to 11 come together in chapter 12. Chapter 12 serves as a conclusion of all the miracles that Jesus has performed up to this point. And chapter 12 also begins what's known as the Passion Narrative. The final days leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. So important things are coming together here to help us understand what Jesus' passion, that is his death, is all about. It's also remarkable in that Jesus' cross is again connected with what is called Jesus' glorification. And that's just not how we normally think in a world that's so bent on pride and self-elevation and self-glory. We have difficulty seeing that the way of humiliation is the way of glorification. You read it earlier from Philippians 2. But Jesus, again, here in our text, brings both of these things together. His humility in death and His glory, His glorification as He speaks of His own death in submission to the Father's will. Also in our passage, we, we encounter the authenticity of Jesus' human, human nature, the Son of God's human nature, as we witness the immense burden that He actually bears when staring in the face His own sufferings and death on the cross. His soul is really troubled, it says in verse 27. The Son of God. The eternal Son of God actually learned suffering in human terms. The eternal Word became flesh to identify with our sufferings under the curse of death. He willingly felt the dread of God's judgment on His way to the cross to deliver us from that judgment. And that is also remarkable Another remarkable aspect of our passage is that God the Father responds to Jesus' prayer audibly. The people standing around hear a voice. There's only two other recorded instances in Jesus' earthly ministry where that occurs, once at His baptism and another time at the transfiguration. So this is a unique event that we come to here in Jesus' ministry, and in every way we should tremble with thanksgiving and awe that God is so graciously willing to reveal Himself to us. He not only chooses to send His Son into the world, but He speaks from heaven about His Son. He bears witness to Him. We read it today by the hand of an eyewitness, the Apostle John. So those are a few reasons why our passage is so remarkable and I, and I would really love to camp out on some of those longer, but, but I want to point your attention to the overarching message all of these remarkable aspects are serving. John has brought these things together to give us a few short lessons about Jesus' mission. And when I say Jesus' mission, I mean the specific divine work 
His Father sent him into the world to accomplish and all of Jesus' doing of it. We get, a, we get at least four lessons here about that mission from our passage. Lesson number one, the ultimate aim of Jesus' mission is to glorify the Father. The ultimate aim of Jesus' mission is to glorify the Father. And we see this in verses 27 and 28. He says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus is on a mission here. It's it's not merely that the hour comes upon Jesus. It's not merely that Jesus somehow stumbles into the hour. Jesus comes to the hour willingly. Facing the hour is his pursuit. And should the temptation present itself to escape the sufferings of this hour... Jesus submits himself to the purpose for which God sent him. Another indication that Jesus has a specific mission here. There's a purpose driving him to this hour. And the purpose is voiced in his prayer. Father, glorify your name. Jesus knows his earthly ministry is about to reach its apex in the cross, where he will suffer not just the the, the hatred of, of, of the Jews or the uh, brutality of Roman crucifixion, but he will suffer under the fierce weight of God's wrath against the world's sin. And his chief concern, his chief motivation, is not escape from that hour. It's not relief from his troubled soul in that hour. It's that he fulfill the purpose for which he was sent to begin with, namely to glorify his Father through his mission. Another way to say it is that Jesus' mission is to make his Father look great. In the same way that, that we might discern someone's character by the way they act, so we also discern God's character by the way he acts in his Son. Jesus' prayer is for God to be seen for who he truly is through his mission. His prayer is for God to make himself look great through the events of his coming death and his resurrection. Not in the sense that any greatness needed to be added to God, but in the sense that God's greatness would be displayed, would be put on display publicly for the world. That's the main reason Jesus comes to his hour. And we get even more specific with the second lesson that we learn from this passage, namely the ultimate aim of Jesus' mission is also the Father's aim. The ultimate aim of Jesus' mission is the Father's aim. In other words, Jesus is set on glorifying his Father's name because that's why his Father sent him. Jesus' passion to glorify the Father's name is rooted in the Father's passion to glorify His name. God the Father sent God the Son on a mission to glorify God the Father in the saving of sinners. Read with me 
the father's response to Jesus' prayer in the rest of verse 28. It says, Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. What we're getting here is the father's interpretation of Jesus' mission. He's explaining audibly all that's occurred in Jesus' mission up to his appointed hour. I have glorified it. And then all that's about to occur in Jesus' hour, especially his death on the cross, I will glorify it again. If you look on the screen for just a minute, I've prepared a little diagram to help you outline what's going on in John's gospel. This is really a snapshot of Jesus' mission as it's fleshed out in John's gospel. And if you look just, I mean, if you look there, you see that he's the eternal word who becomes flesh. He has works that he does leading up to the cross. And then if you look just beneath the cross, you'll see a line. And that line is labeled the hour of glorification. The hour of glorification that we've been reading about, this hour that's been coming, this hour that he says is now here, this hour extends from the cross through the resurrection to his exaltation into glory And it includes two sorts of glorification. We talked about these last week some. One, you see, is just above the cross. That's when God displays His glory in Jesus' death. And then the resurrection just confirms and announces that glory. And the other, you see, just after Jesus returns to the Father. That's when God reclothes Jesus with the glory He had before the world existed. If you want a diagram with all the verse references, Gary's prepared one in the foyer for you on your way out. But I prepared this one to help you get the bigger picture of what's going on in our text when God says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The Father gave Jesus particular works. There's the works before the cross. He's to perform these works during his earthly ministry. Sometimes they're called signs in John's gospel. And these signs had the specific purpose of manifesting God's glory as Jesus obeyed the Father's will. If you remember, every time he's performing a miracle in John's gospel, he's always pointing out to the people that he's doing it because of the one who sent him. The one who sent him has given even these works to do. He wants you always connecting. I do these things in obedience to my Father. And I'm following His will. So this took place again and again to teach us that everything Jesus does leading up to this hour anticipates what God achieves through His hour. Namely, the revelation of the Father's glory in the Son's obedience unto death on a cross. So when God speaks here, I have glorified it. It's as if he's saying, I have displayed my glory through my son's obedience already. And I'm about to display my glory through my son's obedience supremely when he obeys my will even unto death 
on a cross where I will pour out my wrath upon him. The cross is where the full range of God's infinite perfections and majesty are fixing to be revealed in the ministry and mission of Jesus Christ. God the Father is saying the full range of my infinite perfections are going to be revealed. They're going to be publicly put on display when I crucify my son for sinners. This is the Father's interpretation of the cross. It's why Jesus says that this voice has come for your sake, not mine. When God spoke from heaven, he was telling us what his son's death was about. It was about displaying his glory in saving the world. And this shouldn't catch us by surprise. God has worked this way throughout the Bible. Any act of salvation towards mankind is ultimately about the revelation of God's glory or the spread of God's name or the manifestation of God's power so that others witness it. When God saves people, it's never an announcement of how much the people he's saving are worth. It's always an announcement about the greatness of God in saving them despite their unworthiness. What that means is that as we approach the cross ourselves, as we sing about the cross, as we trust in what God did for us on the cross, and as we preach the cross to others, we should not see the cross as an echo of our glory but as a revelation of God's glory. We should not view Jesus' death as an echo of our worthiness, but as a public display of God's worthiness. To put it another way, the cross is first about the Father's revelation of His glory in the Son before it's ever about addressing human needs. Do both of those things come together in the cross? Absolutely and gloriously so. It's just that if we make the cross an echo of our worth, as if God sent Jesus to die for us because he'd be missing out on something great if he didn't, then we'll never know God truly in his holiness. And we'll never see the depths of his love for us rightly. And we'll keep idolizing self just like humanity has done since the fall. And we'll be very disappointed on Judgment Day when all of heaven is worshiping God for the cross and not us. The main reason Jesus came to die was because His Father is lovely, not because we are lovely. But therein lies the only hope that we would be saved unlovely as we are. When we look at the cross, we don't say, see how much I'm worth to God? We say, see all that God is in His holiness and in His justice and in His righteousness and in His jealousy for His name and in His wrath against sin. See all that God is in His love, and in His grace, and in His compassion, and in His mercy and wisdom towards sinners, and see all God has done for me, unworthy as I am, to have Him.
to have him. The cross is heaven's loudest shout that God is infinitely glorious and that his glory is central even when he chooses to save us. Lesson number three. The Father's aim to glorify himself in Jesus' mission brings great salvation for sinners. Brings great salvation for sinners. So this is where God's pursuit of his glory in the cross and our salvation come together. Because what we find in these next few verses is that God will not allow the evil world system which despises his glory to win out in the end. You know the world in John's gospel. We've been through this several times before. The world is the whole system of rebellion against God. Everyone in the world has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone in the world is guilty for exchanging the truth about God's glory for a lie and for idols. Everyone is subject to an evil world ruler, the devil himself, that enjoys robbing God of his glory. But the next few verses tell us that God will not allow that to continue. In fact, his decisive triumph over evil is just over the horizon with Jesus' death and exaltation. He will deal the decisive blow to the evil world system as Jesus finishes his mission so that his glory and his glory alone is lifted above all. And get this, this is where our salvation comes in. He's bringing a whole bunch of people with him when he does it. He's bringing a whole bunch of people, men and women from every tribe, tongue, and people and nation when he does it. It's one of the amazing things about the cross. The cross is God's way to rescue evil people who hate his glory from an evil world that despises his glory all the while upholding his glory. Look at it with me, beginning in verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. What kind of death is he going to die? It tells us he's going to die a death that judges the world casts out the ruler of this world and becomes his pathway to victory where he draws all draws people from all nations under his lordship. Let's look at it more closely. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now. Now is the judgment of this world. This is amazing because in chapter 5, verses 22 and 27... We were told to expect a future judgment. A judgment in the future when God will give the Son of Man all authority to execute judgment. But there's a very real sense in which God has already declared what he thinks of the world in the death of Jesus on the cross. He has given his sentence on the world In the death of Jesus on the cross. This was even anticipated earlier in chapter 3 verse 19. When John says this is the judgment. The light 
that is God's Son, has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Jesus' coming into the world passes judgment on the world insofar as its rejection of him exposes the depth of our depravity. The world is so morally bent on evil, in other words, it wants nothing to do with, with the one who reveals God's glory. And so what do they do? They pretend like they have the power to judge and condemn Jesus. When in reality, by judging and condemning Jesus, they've condemned themselves. This is what's happening as Jesus enters his hour, an hour when the evil world will make the infinitely beautiful one bleed before hanging him on a cross. And when that happens, God will be passing judgment, giving his sentence on the world in the death of Jesus. If you want to know what God thinks about the evil world and your own sins, which are part of that evil world, and our depravity and our ignoring of his worship and praise for lesser things in this world, if you want to know what he thinks about that, then only, you only need to look at the cross. God condemns the world's evil when Jesus dies on the cross. He pours out his wrath even on your sins when Jesus carries them with him in his body to the cross. God's judgment of the evil world is clear in Jesus' death. And as long as you side with the world, then Jesus' cross stands as a constant testimony against you and your evil. It will not be the place where you find salvation. It will always be the place that announces your condemnation before that day comes. But here's something amazing, is that God's judgment of the world in the cross also results in the salvation of all who would side with Jesus. All who would forsake the evil world and put their faith, their trust in Jesus Christ. Christ, Paul says this in Galatians 3, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It's where God's judged our sins in Christ by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin God condemned sin in the flesh. That judgment of God against sin and evil results in our salvation if we trust in Christ. But if we refuse to trust in Christ, the cross will always stand against us as a testimony that judgment day is coming for us. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Judgment day is coming, but God has provided a way of escape now when he condemned Jesus on the cross. 
If you trust in Jesus, that, that cross is where your judgment took place. You don't await another judgment. You only await fellowship with God and His smiling face. So the cross is where God passes judgment on the world. He, he gives the world its sentence. This is what He thinks. And this is where it's going. And not only does God pass judgment on the evil world in Jesus' death, but He also casts out the evil world's ruler, Satan himself. We should think of this casting out... I mean, we shouldn't think of this casting out in, in like spatial categories. As if Satan was kicked out of this world into some other world. The Bible tells us Satan still has an active presence in this world, and it even gives us instructions on how to resist him, how to discern his wicked schemes, how to preach and pray for victory over him. A better way to think of this casting out is in terms of smashing his tyranny over people or overthrowing his place of authority in people's lives. The New Testament says Jesus achieves this victory through his death. So, for example, in Colossians 2, we get this picture that uh, the powers of darkness actually hold a, a sort of certificate, maybe a folder if you're thinking of a law court. The guy that's coming to accuse you has a folder and all of your breaking of God's law is in that folder. He holds this, these powers of darkness hold this folder, this certificate, and that certificate also spells out the penalty that you deserve for your sins for breaking God's law. And the powers of darkness hold this over us to keep us under their power and influence. But Paul says this in Colossians 2. It says that you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive God, uh, let's see, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. So what he's saying is he took that folder, he took their certificate, nailed it to the cross, took it out of their hands. They ain't got any more power over all of those who follow Jesus. He paid the penalty that was laid out in that certificate. And since no punishment is left, no condemnation is left for the people he died for who trust in him, the prince and principalities of the world ain't got nothing to hold over him anymore. In fact, they ain't got nothing to hold over him to the degree that he sends them on a parade before the world to mock them. Says this is how much of a threat they are to my people. I have taken their sins away. So he has stripped the powers and the principalities of their accusing might. We're going to see a picture of this in a minute. 
when Satan's accusing some people in Revelation. We'll get there. Or he does this. uh, Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. The devil oppresses people with death. Death is something the devil has in his hands. He can oppress people with it so so that in the face of death, they submit to his will instead of to Jesus' will. But Hebrews 2 says this, Jesus partook of flesh and blood so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In other words, it wasn't going to be something that just automatically goes away from you one day. You would be in lifelong slavery under this power, and Jesus stripped it from him when he himself died on the cross and rose from the dead. So through Jesus' death, God condemns the evil world and then ousts this world's leader from his place of authority in people's lives. The very weapons he uses, the, the, the devil uses to rule people, namely sin and death, have been taken from his hands so that he has no real power over those who follow Jesus. 1 John 5.18 says that we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but Christ who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. So here's where this great picture comes in of what sort of freedom from the devil's rule Jesus gives his people. And uh, this comes from Revelation chapter, chapter 12. It says uh, that the great dragon, the red dragon, this one's called Satan, is cast out of heaven. The great dragon was thrown down. The ancient serpent, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation, the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has, have come for the accuser of our brothers So he's accusing people on earth. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. And get this in verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. In other words, the evil world and its ruler doesn't dictate their lives anymore. Even when he threatens them with death and tempts them with sin, the blood of the Lamb frees them from Satan's strongholds and the grip of this evil world, such that they can even give up their lives for Christ's sake. I can't help but think of Miriam, who you've probably been reading about in the news, who's living in Sudan right now and is a Christian, but under Muslim law is going to be killed. A hundred lashes after she gives birth to her baby and then death by hanging. All for professing the name of Jesus. What we see in somebody like Miriam 
is that the power of the cross is great because she is delivered from this evil world. She is delivered from this world's grip on her soul and she is delivered from Satan's strongholds on her. May the same be true for us. Satan's power is decisively broken when Jesus dies for sins on the cross and overcomes the threat of death. John 16:11 even says that one of the jobs the Holy Spirit has after Jesus is glorified to his Father in heaven, one of the jobs the Holy Spirit has is convicting the world of judgment. And it says this, he is to convict the world concerning judgment, why? Because the ruler of this world is judged. Meaning, the Holy Spirit's job is to, through the preaching of the gospel and the spread of the truth, it's to come and say, you are a fool if you keep following a defeated foe and living for a defeated kingdom. That's the Holy Spirit's job. As the word of the gospel goes forth, And then what else does he do? Oh, he points us to the Son of Man who's been exalted. Verse 32 completes our picture. So if we're not going to follow that kingdom, it's defeated kingdom. Whose kingdom are we going to follow? Well, this one. Verse 32 completes our picture with the world judged and its ruler ousted. God does something more. He lifts up Jesus to his rightful place of honor and authority over the new world order. Only he happens to do this also through the cross. Jesus says that he will be lifted up from the earth. He's referring to his death by crucifixion. But when you look at, when you read this in light of the bigger picture, what I showed you a while ago with the the hour of his glorification... Jesus' death is no mere crucifixion. It is his appointed pathway to glory and exaltation. This language of lifting up comes from the prophet Isaiah. And in Isaiah, nearly every time that it occurs, God or his temple mount, where he rules with his people, God or his temple mount is being lifted up or exalted in the last days above everything. And this was God's way of saying that He alone would win, that He alone would rule, that His glory alone would be above all other peoples and nations. And then amazingly, in Isaiah fifty-two thirteen, God applies the same language to His suffering servant. Right before Isaiah 53 talks about His suffering. And He says this, we know this is Jesus, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Jesus is borrowing this same language from Isaiah to say that his lifting up from the earth, don't miss that, his lifting up from the earth, that in in that event, God himself will exalt his son. Not only will he display the Son's glory through his death, but he will confirm and announce the Son's glory upon raising him from the earth back to glory 
with the Father. In other words, the cross is the pathway to glory and victory with the Father. And this only makes sense in light of the fact that Jesus is the Son of Man. You remember this. We saw it in verse 24. He calls himself the Son of Man. And that terminology comes from Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14, where it says, where God himself said, it says, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Jesus is telling us that this is how he brings that kingdom that Daniel looked for. He brings it this way, first through his humility on the cross and then through his exalted lordship in heaven, which is what he goes on to say. When I am lifted up from the earth, what does he do? Draws all men to himself. When this Son of Man is lifted up in glory, through His death and exaltation, with all His enemies overthrown, He draws all people from all nations to Himself. He doesn't draw every single individual in the world. All people isn't referring to all people without exception. People must believe in order to be saved. People must be born again in order to come. People must be part of God's sheep, part of His children, who hear His voice. But it does mean that Jesus draws all people without distinction, whether Jew or Greek, whether young or old, whether rich or poor, whether a bad sinner or the worst of sinners. Jesus draws people from all nations to Himself. He has snapped Satan's power over them, loosed them from captivity to the evil world system so that when He calls them through the gospel, they come to Him. They don't come, also notice, they don't come to a mere system of beliefs. They don't come to an organized institution. They don't come to a philosophy of life. They come to the person of Jesus himself. They come to the exalted Son of Man who gave his life for them. This is how Jesus conquers the world. This is how Jesus brings his kingdom. This is how we are saved as Jesus pursues his Father's glory. Lesson number four. Jesus' mission to glorify His Father demands that we walk in His light. And I take the light there to mean walking in the light of God's kingdom. The one that He's establishing. In fellowship with Him, walk in His light. The crowd doesn't understand all this that He's been saying. They try to fit Him into their own categories, but they stumble over His words. And so Jesus appeals to them once more to walk in His light and believe in Him. He says, The light is among you for a little while longer, meaning He, as the light of the world, is among them a little while longer. His death is coming. So here's the first appeal He makes. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. That's the darkness of this present evil world that he's defeated. If you walk with Jesus, that he's going to defeat in his cross. If you, if you walk with Jesus, the one we saw already judged and conquered the dark 
world through the cross, then the darkness of this evil world will not overtake you. If you walk in the light, the, dark, the darkness will not overcome you. If you don't walk in the light, the darkness will. It will swallow you up. He goes on. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. And that's really bad news in the Gospel of John. It means that you join everybody else that's walking blindly but gladly straight to hell. And John is getting this language of light and darkness from the prophet Isaiah. And I just want to point out one place in particular in Isaiah 50 where this same sort of thing becomes clear. But Isaiah 50 is talking about God's servant that he's going to send into the world who, and, and, he's, and he's contrasting this servant's faithfulness as opposed to Israel's sin. And so the point is that we must obey this servant. And in verse 10 of Isaiah 50, he says this, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servants? So picture Jesus. Jesus is God's servant. He's talking to Israel. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. So that's the appeal. Same appeal Jesus is making to the Jews in his day. Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. So here's the picture. You follow Jesus' servant and you walk in the light, you're saved. If you decide to take your own little torch and walk around in the, in the world with your own little torch instead of following the light of Jesus, God says, this you can guarantee, you will lie down in torment. Jesus has been telling them the same things in terms of following the light. So again, he makes another appeal. Jesus makes another appeal to the Jews. He says, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Not just so that, believe in the light not just so that you can escape fire. Believe in the light that you might be fundamentally changed into a son of light. Jesus' appeal to them is that true escape from the world's darkness is found in a relationship with Him. True freedom from the blinding power of this world's sin is found in a relationship with Him. When you walk with Jesus and believe in Him, you believe that God has judged the world in Him, you believe that God overthrew the devil in Him, you believe that God is drawing all people under His Lordship, when you believe that about Jesus, then you're fundamentally changed. You no longer just see Jesus as the light. You become a son of light or daughter of light. Which is another way of saying a person characterized by Jesus' light. A person reflecting the glory of God that radiates so brightly in Jesus. A person belonging to the new world order under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Satan no longer has sway over your life. 
The world and its way of thinking no longer has sway over your life. Jesus now directs your steps and your words and changes your affections. You see things that you were never able to see before. You see the sinfulness of your sin in contrast to the newfound love for God's holiness. You see the darkness of this world in contrast to the beauty of Jesus' light. You see the stupidity of Satan's lies in contrast to God's hope-filled truth. You see the foolishness of following the defeated evil kingdom in contrast to God's forever kingdom now under the rule of Jesus Christ. You see the vanity of prideful human pursuits in contrast to delighting in the glory of God. So, with the words of the Apostle Paul, wake up from your slumber, brothers and sisters. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let's cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let's walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Not in lifestyles that idolize comfort. Not in patterns of laziness in our vocations. Not in careless words with our wives. Not with coveting hearts toward others and their gifts. Or with grumbling spirits towards our children or with selfish attitudes. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. If you believe in Jesus this morning, you were darkness at one time, but now you are light of the world. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and true and right. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. You call evil what it is. And let's learn to call evil what it is without a smirk on our face or laughter in our hearts over the evil. And let us then lift up all that brings glory to God's name. Moreover, pray that God's light would penetrate the darkness around us, the darkness in your home, the darkness in your neighborhoods, the darkness in this city, the darkness among West Bengali Muslims, in South Asia, and Turks in Central Asia, and Dai people in Southeast Asia, and Mormons in Salt Lake City, and Provo. If Jesus has truly cast out the ruler of this world, then we pray against a defeated world empire, and we pray with great hope that Jesus' kingdom can and will advance among all people. It doesn't matter if the darkness wears war paint while carrying voodoo dolls or if he wears a pinstripe suit driving a sophisticated, polished sports car. God is able to penetrate the darkness and save. It doesn't matter if the darkness looks like broken, drug-infested apartment complexes full of prostitution just down the street or sophisticated, greed-infested communities full of adulterous hearts. God is bringing the evil world system down and and he dealt the decisive blow to it 
in the cross of Christ. So pray that God would break through to people and save them. Teach each other how to pray and tell each other what to pray for in your care group meetings. That God's light might shine and people's eyes might be open to the glory of God in Christ's cross and resurrection. And preach the gospel with fervency of spirit. Don't think for one minute that anybody you meet will be saved apart from seeing the exalted Son of Man. Jesus is right now drawing all people to himself from his heavenly reign. And he does this when you invest your lives in the when you invest your life in the lives of others and proclaim that he, in fact, is exalted, Lord of heaven and earth. And when you, when you come to them, when you share and preach the gospel, show them how God conquers evil in Christ. Show them how God judges the world in Christ. Show them how God displayed his greatness in the cross. Show them God's holiness from the cross and the depth of their rebellion. And then show them God's scandalous love displayed in Jesus' death for their sins. If we learn anything from the book of Acts, it's that when the glory of God in the cross of Jesus is lifted high... People from all kinds of backgrounds with all kinds of sins fall in love with Jesus and submit their lives to him. And when they do, not only are they transferred into the son's kingdom, but God's glory goes on display even more as the power of Jesus' cross is confirmed and the volume of worship increases among all the peoples of the earth. And that's what it's all about anyway, is it not? The cross has taught us that today. It's about God receiving all glory and being seen as truly glorious in what he's done for sinners. And finally, persevere. Persevere in these things and the pursuit of holiness and and prayer and preaching. Persevere in these things. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, Paul says in Romans sixteen twenty, His kingdom is a defeated one. And we know that his ultimate end is the lake of fire. And should he accuse you along the way for your sins, agree with him that they are ugly, but God already condemned them on the cross once and for all, where he judged Jesus in your place. And should he threaten you with death, Remind yourself that the Son of Man stands in heaven victorious and has power to raise you in the end from the dead. The serpent's tail is a nasty thing, but his head has already been crushed when Jesus died on the cross. So persevere in this world. If you're in Christ, you belong to a kingdom that will not fail and has much hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would... Grant us great boldness in the truth that you would give us courage to speak about all that God has done in Christ. I pray that you would mature us as a church in proclaiming the good news to others. That you would mature me and Wes and Dale as as pastors as we learn to teach more effectively and Speak of the glories of the cross to your people. I pray that you would humble us all before you. That you would make us a people that is 
consumed with your glory as Jesus was consumed with your glory. And we see what kind of life he lived because of it. Consume us with your glory that we might lay our lives down in service for the eternal good of others. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.